Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture will be um, Isaiah 40, 12 through 18, which is on page 347 on the Bibles of the seatbacks. And of course, if you do not have a Bible, please accept one as a free gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Thus says God's word. Join me in prayer for this morning's message. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us as we've already experienced in the songs of praise that we've sung and the prayers that we've received and given. God, we just thank you for this day, this opportunity to hear your word, to sit before you and, and God, just soak in the beauty of your self-revelation. And so, God, I pray that as we do this, that we would not be hindered by our own presuppositions or prejudices, but that, Lord, you would show us uh, yourself and fully reveal yourself through your word, God, and that we would receive it. I pray that our ears would divinely hear the truth that is spoken and that we would conform our lives to that truth, that we would not resist it or fight it in our unbelief, but God, that we would just submit to it. And God, I pray for myself as I do each week, Lord, that you would enable me to speak uh, authoritatively and yet humbly as someone who is who is carrying the most holy words of all, God. And so I ask that you would keep me uh, in that perspective, Lord, to, to submit myself to your goodness, to your, um, uh, to your authority, and, um, God, that I would speak nothing that was outside of your will, and, uh, God, that I would restrain myself to the pu- pure meaning of your words. And so, God, I ask all this in Jesus' name. Pray that you would prepare us for this message now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, before we get started, um, I want to re, re-remind you, re-remind you of something that we do around here that has been a lot of fun and very instructive, very helpful. And, um, and it is our Sunday afternoon discussion groups. What we do is, uh, twice a month, we gather the second and fourth Sunday of the month. We gather at either here during colder weather and at the park during warmer weather. And, um, we're doing that today. And so if you have plans for lunch or something, 
do me a favor, cancel those, and do this with us. Go grab some fast food, and we'll meet there. We'll get started around 12, 15. I think we got the address up there yet. Uh, oh, we don't have the address. Barbara Hinojosa Park. I never can remember the address. Google it um, and uh, and <laughs> join us there. Um, but uh, we do that right at 12, 15 today. It's going to be a beautiful day, so you don't want to miss this. It's not going to be 102,000 or whatever degrees, and so uh, it's going to be a great day to be there. So Grab something from home, pick up some fast food, join us, and we'll have a, 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 a more expanded conversation about the things we're talking about today. And saying that, I want to just let you know we're going to begin a brand new series today. We did just a really short series after we finished Mark of three messages, and that's concluded. And so over the next uh, several weeks... We're going to be examining the attributes of God. Um, our goal in this series um, is to help us all uh, as a congregation and also as individuals to think higher thoughts about God, to think more worthy thoughts about God, to think more accurate thoughts about God. A.W. Tozer, the great writer, said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And though this series will be finite, we're not going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever, um, the deepest meditation upon the person and the nature of God should occupy our thoughts eternally. From now through all the ages of eternally, we will be, the, the things that we will just touch on in this series are the things that will fuel constant praise in the next life. Amen? And so I pray that this series will help you. Um, I don't want it to be just theoretical. I want it to be very practical. And so I pray that it will help you answer questions like, who is God? And what is God? And things like, how can we know about him? And how can we know what we know? And what benefit does such meditation on the attributes of God hold for us? And are these things, as I said, merely theoretical propositions? Or is there vital application to each and every Christian life in the meditation of these things? And the reason the the elders and I felt this was so important is because there's never been a time in human history, I don't think, when this kind of preaching was so vital for the church. And, and the reason I say that, it's not that it wasn't vital before or won't be vital later, but this is because most people outside the, the church in the West, uh, you know, places like America, and many within the church assume with very, very little grounds for doing so that they both know and understand God. And, and yet they define him according to their own shifting tastes and their own shifting preferences. And this is why you'll frequently hear people speak in the public arena about what they think God is like. And, and they'll state propositions when they state what they think God is like that have absolutely no support from Holy Scripture whatsoever. And so we've entered a time, and, and you see this in many different ways, every time you turn on the news, every time you hear a speech from a politician, you see this. We've entered a time where personal feelings have way overpowered the truth in the public square. And so what we've done when it comes to the, uh, the attributes of God, we've anthropomorphized the Lord to be something very much like ourselves and unlike who he really is. And what's happened is that sinful people, and that includes all of us, amen? Sinful people have reduced God 
to the level of a creature. They, their comparisons of what God must be like are always creaturely comparisons. And, and they do this to make him more manageable. But would you be interested to know what God says about it when we do that? Anybody here interested in that? Psalms chapter 50, verse 21 says this. These things you have done, this is God speaking. These things you have done and I have been silent. Now watch this. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. We all know, if we're familiar with just the Ten Commandments, that we're biblically prohibited to imagine God as anything other than what he has revealed himself to be. The second commandment forbids us to make graven images of wood and stone so that we can uh, be helped in our visualization and worship of what we imagine God to be. But here's my question today. We're not concerned, as I say all the time, about what, what pagans are doing somewhere in the South Pacific. Here's what I'm concerned with. I want to ask you the question. Are we, as Christians, oftentimes guilty of making images not out of stone or wood, but in our hearts that are unworthy of God in all of his self-revealed majesty and truth? Do we set up things in our heart and we say, that's what God's like, and has nothing to do at all with the reality of who God is? Perhaps we imagine God to be perfectly and completely devoid of judgment, accepting all comers just as they are. Perhaps we see him as only harsh and fierce, eager to destroy us for the smallest infraction. Perhaps, this is Texas, he's a Republican God. Or maybe, if you live on the West Coast, he's an environmentalist God. Maybe he's a Baptist God or a Presbyterian God. Perhaps he's an American God or an exclusively Hebrew God. But when we try to isolate him to our own comfortable categories, we will always fall infinitely short of any functional or beneficial understanding of him at all. You will miss the forest for the trees when you try to make him like yourself. His attributes, when we study his attributes, it helps us to understand exactly what he's decreed for us to know about him. And the relational way that he desires for us to know him. See, when we're talking about the attributes of God, the, the, the ways that help us understand God, we're not dealing with scientific or philosophical data that allows us to know God like we know a chrysanthemum or a jellyfish, but with truth that draws us into intimacy with him. That's why we study the attributes, so that we can know him. This reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 9, 23, one of the first verses I memorized and just has been so so guiding in my life. Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. But watch this, verse 24, But let him who boasts... Boast in this. See, God's not telling you not to boast. He's saying boast in the right thing. And what is the right thing, you may ask? Let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, 
justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Your grounds for boasting is found in the study of God's attributes. It's not in your might, your strength, your wisdom, your beauty. It's found when you know and you understand God as God has revealed himself to be. This knowing, when he says, to know me, it's the Hebrew yada. I love that word. It means to ascertain by seeing. In other words, by careful observation, we begin to know, we begin to understand. And these considerations that we're going to engage in in the next several weeks should help us to see God as he is and not be misled by our own vain imaginations, our own empty speculations. And this word is so powerful, it also implies the, the, the knowing of a familiar friendship or of close family kinship. And this is how we want to know God. We don't want to know God as the great cop in the sky who gets us off our tickets when we believe, right? We want to know him intimately as a friend, as a, as, as a brother, the Bible says, and as a father. Our first challenge when we under, undertake this study is to understand what we mean exactly when we speak of attributes. When we think of God's holiness or his omniscience or his infinitude, it's easy for us to think of these things or imagine of these things as though they are parts that make up the sum of God. Uh, but, but if we do that, that is already to start off on, on the path of a creaturely way to think about God. Let me give you an example. You and I, every one of us in this room, have physical parts. They differ greatly, but we all have them. I have hair, thank God, at my age. I have hair. I have a nose. I have arms. So do you. Most of you, Rindy, um, have hair on nose and arms. And so um, we're, we're, uh, we're grateful for those things. And, and we also have spiritual parts. We exist, every one of us, with a sin nature that, that you know, plagues us. And we have, as believers of faith, that draws us to Christ. Now, you and I, all those things I mentioned, physical things, spiritual things, we are the composite or the sum of those things. How many of you know that, that the, when you're talking about your sin nature and your faith, that there is a shift sometimes moment by moment in the power of each one, the way that they work in your life? We're the sum or the composite at any given moment of those things. But my nose, thank God, isn't all there is of me. And my sin nature, really thank God, isn't all there is of me. You following what I'm saying? But the, the Westminster Confession of Faith states, There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, listen to this, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. And what the, the confession is telling us here is that God does not consist of components or parts like you and I do. What do I mean by that? Instead, God is always perfectly all that he is all of the time. In other words, God is not made up of a component part of justice and a component part of mercy, but he is always perfectly just and always perfectly merciful. You would, you could apply that statement to any single one of God's attributes. God never reduces or relinquishes one of his attributes to express another one. 
Therefore, an, an attribute, rightly understood, is not a facet of who God is, but it's something that is always and perfectly true about God. Something that's always true about God. Something that can't be otherwise. No one can, uh, no one can attribute, uh, no one attribute rather can ever be displaced by the manifestation of another. When we think about God's attributes, we think of what God always perfectly is. God never surrenders His holiness to exercise his wrath. He never surrenders his transcendence at the expense of his eminence. His immutability cannot be altered in any way by God's display of his mercy to his creatures. And this is what he means, we're going to talk about this more next week, but this is what he means when he declares himself in Exodus to be I am that I am. It's so integral to who he is that that is his name, that is his holiest name, I am that I am. It means he's always the same, that he's inexhaustible, that he's perfect, that he's self-existent and self-sufficient. In other words, unlike God, God is his attributes. Now, that's going to be a really important factor in the next several months. So let me say it again. Unlike us, God is his attributes. I am not my hair. I am not my faith, you know, uh, entirety. I am, I am a composite. God is not. God is his attributes. When we say that's why the apostle John wrote, God is love. He didn't mean he's only love, but he says in the love that he is, he's perfectly love. God is just. He's perfectly just. God is righteous. He's perfectly righteous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is the framework for how we'll consider God's attributes going forward. Now, here comes the speed bump. Right off the bat, on this study, we're in the first week, not even halfway through the message, and we realize, if we're, if we're really thinking this through, we realize that we have just encountered a major speed bump, huge difficulty. How can creatures ever truly understand their creator? What can I ever possibly know about the Creator? It doesn't take us long to realize how little we know about the God to whom we've given our lives. Instead, we're all like Job. Do you remember Job's confession in chapter 42 at the very end of the book after God has just shown him his exaltation and greatness? This is what Job says. He says, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here's what I'm trying to say to you. In the fullest sense... God is completely and totally and fully incomprehensible to us. This is the first specific attribute we're going to ponder, his incomprehensibility. This is the affirmation of both the Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. As we've said, God is not partially incomprehensible. He's not in some ways incomprehensible, but he is perfectly incomprehensible in all of his attributes. The fullness of his eternity, his omnipotence, his faithfulness, his justice, his infinitude are all to us 
incomprehensible. And this is what the text this morning alludes to that Lita read to us. God describes himself as one who can hold the oceans in the palm of his hand. And he measures the universe with perfect accuracy. He bags up all the dust of the earth. And he weighs mountain ranges on his scale. He asks, who has ever been able to measure the spirit of the Lord? In other words, who has ever been able to catalog his wisdom? Furthermore, he asks, who would even have the audacity to imagine that they've taught him anything? He emphasizes this by pointing out that the nations, in his eyes, are just a mere drop in the bucket. We love to talk about the, the wisdom and engineering of Egypt and the, and the philosophy of Greece. And God says, it's nothing. Just a mere drop in the bucket in his sight. He says that even if someone collected all the cedars of Lebanon to burn up all the wildlife of Lebanon, it wouldn't amount to a sufficient sacrificial offering for someone of his glorious magnitude. Now, we may believe these things by faith, and I hope you do. I hope when you read those words in Isaiah that there's an internal amen that jumps out from you. But who among us would dare say that we truly understand them? Who has stood before the Pacific Ocean or the Grand Canyon, taking in their majesty, and ever stopped to just consider that these created things that dwarf us, that make us feel so small, these things are just less than trinkets beside our God. And so Isaiah finishes the text that Leda read with these words, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with him? We have no frame of reference whatsoever, no category to put God in. He's, he's exalted, he's above, he's, he's so much more. And so the answer to, to Isaiah's question is clear, nobody. Nobody. And there's two reasons that the Bible gives us as to why God is incomprehensible to us. The first is because he is so far removed from us by virtue of being our creator. It would be just as easy for one of these light bulbs to speak intelligently about Thomas Edison as it would be for one of us to speak intelligently about God. The created thing is not an authority on the creator. Amen? God is near, this is something we teach, we affirm, God is near to all of his creation. This is the attribute of his eminence, which we'll talk about. But God is simultaneously far above and outside all that he's created, including us. And this is his transcendence. But as we see God's relation, whether eminent or transcendent, to all the created order, we must never, ever, ever make the mistake of assigning God a place within the created order. Before any of this was, that is so familiar to all of us that we're almost, you know, uh, desensitized to it, before any of this was, God alone was. Now, this important point, God did not fill all that was. The triune God was all that there was. There was a time, and even the word time doesn't apply, but just allow me to use it. There was a time when there was nothing that existed except 
for the triune God. Now, close your eyes. I'll give you a few seconds and try to imagine that kind of a reality. Where there's nothing, no darkness, no light, no nothing. There's nothing but God. You can't do it. It's impossible. You have no frame of reference. He has no beginning, but he has existed eternally. Before he, he, he existed before time was a thing. That's why I retracted the word time a moment ago. We think in time. That's our frame of reference. He has no frame of reference to time. He needed no place to exist. I exist in a home on 40th Street in Lubbock, Texas. He needs no place to exist. But he existed in perfect harmony with himself throughout all eternity. And he initiated the concept of time when he, for his own good pleasure, created all that was or ever would be over a span of six days, the heavens and the earth, the birds and the fish, animals and humans. This was what he designated in Genesis 1-1 as the beginning. And one of the reasons that he did all this was to make himself known so that he might be glorified. Creation introduces us to God beautifully. Romans uh, chapter 1 verse 20, Paul writes this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so he, in the sixth day he creates humanity, and humanity was created to literally bear his image, which would give us clues as to what he was like. We were created in the garden to enjoy fellowship with God, which would, in which he would reveal more and more of himself. And we were even designated to serve as his agents of dominion on the earth. We were made in his image, but we can't imagine even for a second that we were created in his exact image. We were created finite. God has created infinite. We were created limited in power and limited in wisdom, but God is the all-wise and omnipotent one. Though the world was at first deemed by God to be very good, it still lacked the perfections of its creator. How do we know that? Because Adam's mandate was what? To subdue it, to bring it into submission to the will of God. But, as you know, something changed. God's designated agents rebelled against him. And although God foreknew and prepared for this reality, it removed man from his intimate fellowship with God, wherein God would progressively reveal himself to man as his faithful servant. And this is the second reason why the knowledge of God is so elusive to us. Our hearts became darkened. In Genesis 5-5, right before the flood... God diagnoses the state of humanity just a few generations in. And he says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That which had been given the breath of life as a gift was now irrevocably condemned to death. We not only stood beneath God, as created things, but we fell further away from him when we became fallen beings. Though God never ceased to be good because of sin's entrance 
It corrupted our souls. And Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks after God. It's the human condition. Though he revealed the truth about himself and shedding blood to cover our first parents' nakedness, and he revealed things about himself in preserving Noah's family in the ark, we took every opportunity to suppress that truth through our chaotic unrighteousness. We rejected him doing what was right in our own eyes. An old hymn writer wrote these words to begin his hymn, Oh, what grace! All the world in darkness lay, sin's dark night had banished day. Darkness now enveloped because of sin, all of God's good creation, blinding us to the knowledge of God. We groped in that darkness just to make sense of either the world we inhabited or the gracious God that had formed it. And humanity has been imprisoned in this dark dungeon since that fateful day in the garden. And we can know nothing of God since we, not he, we have turned our backs on him and we've willfully abandoned the wonderful knowledge of him. Way back in the garden. And if that's true, what benefit could there possibly be in setting aside a few months to attempt to comprehend God in all his wonderful attributes? Why even bother? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, here's why. Because as I said earlier, God is undiluted in his mercy towards his creation, and aren't you glad? While it's true that we're completely powerless to possess any truth about God in our unregenerate state, God has chosen to reveal himself to his elect children. And he does this in two marvelous ways that we should never, ever, ever take for granted. First, we come to realize that God has revealed himself ever since our tragic fall in his word. We see what he is like in the promise of a one who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3. We see what he's like in his covenant with Abraham. We see what he's like in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, in his deliverance of his people out of Egypt, in his giving them the law, in his bringing them into the promised land. We see what he's like in the raising up of King David to be their faithful king. Most of us, have multiple copies of God's word in our homes and on our devices, but we struggle to appreciate them for what they are. That word that you hold in your hands, many of you right now, it is the self-revelation of the holy, living, almighty, and merciful Savior. And we neglect the most vital information that we could ever have access to, preferring what boils down to just trivia instead. Many of us rely on sermons and podcasts, books, and even our own speculations instead of devouring the magnificent revelation of God in his own word in the Bible, meditating on it, camping in it daily. And it shows, it shows that we're not there, we're not rooted and grounded in the word of God. We're satisfied with secondhand knowledge instead of acquainting 
and reacquainting ourselves with a God who would be known by his people. Do you realize what a privilege and an opportunity that is? The God who could never be known by us invites us to know him. What a wonderful gift. We must return to the word of God diligently, vociferously, if we would ever call ourselves believers. Otherwise, how will we even know what we should believe? Second, not only have we been given this beautiful self-revelation of God and his word, but we have been shown the perfect image of God in the incarnation of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 8, records an exchange between one of his disciples, Philip, and Jesus. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, how long have I, or have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Listen to this. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Colossians tells us that all the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, dwells perfectly within Christ. Do you want to know the Father? Now I'm asking you a question. Do you want to know the Father? Look to Christ. He alone is the perfect embodiment of all of God's attributes that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks. Do you want to know God's eternity, a concept which we struggle with so mightily? Well, just be quiet for a moment and hear Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am. Do you want to know his power? Just throw your eyes out on the sea and watch him as he walks upon the waves. And commands the storm to be silent before him. Do you want the unfiltered vision of his glory? Then just look upon him as he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Speaking with Moses and Elijah. Do you want to witness the wisdom of God in action? Just watch him as he silences his most clever persecutors. Most of all, would you like to see his great, Mercy towards sinners like you and I. And just watch as his blood drips from his brow, from his back, from his hands, and from his feet and puddles beneath the cross. And remember how he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the blood of my covenant poured out. For you, and you will know the mercy of God. Do you want to see all these wonderful attributes come together in perfect harmony? Then just peer into his empty tomb and watch as he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven, having won all authority in heaven and on earth, having been given a name which is above every other name. There is nothing that you need to know about God that you cannot learn by observing Jesus. If it weren't for the flawless revelation of Holy Scripture, we would know nothing about God and his attributes. 
If it weren't for Jesus, we wouldn't be able to say that we've seen him, that we've known him, and that we have been changed in the seeing of him. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you that though, Lord, we have been ignorant not only in our created state, but willfully ignorant in our fallen state, God, that you have revealed yourself. And you've revealed yourself because you are nothing less than a gracious God. God, you revealed yourself in your word and all of its manifold promises, Lord God. The promises that comfort and encourage us, that strengthen and compel us. We thank you for those promises. And Lord, we thank you that when we still struggled to understand you, Lord, you sent the perfect representation in your son. That he became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory And we learned from it, Lord. We learned what you're like. We learned of your patience and your holiness, your wrath and your kindness. We saw it all in Jesus. So God, I pray that you would draw us this week to deeper, more worthy thoughts of you. Strengthen us in the meditation, Lord. That we can be people who know their God, as Daniel says, and in his name do mighty exploits. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion workers to come forward and help us serve at the table. Um, we, uh, as we talk about God's incomprehensible nature and how he makes himself known, one of the most beautiful ways he does that for the church is through the Lord's Supper, where he has given us these powerful words, but also these symbols, these these elements, these sacraments of bread and wine to show us the truth of his sacrifice. And more than that, as we said in the in the uh, catechism today, that it actually allows us by action of the Holy Spirit to partake of the living, resurrected body of Christ and, and partake of his blood. Um, even though we don't believe that these these elements become the body and blood. It's an action of the Holy Spirit that allows that to become reality, and we fully affirm that here. And so um, as you um, come today, I always like to give you a little bit of instruction. I'd like for you to come and and realize that these things you would never have known if God hadn't chosen to reveal them to you. And so come and give him thanks as you are preparing to receive these elements. And thank him for making himself known for you, to you, for, for his self-revelation to you that has brought you so much grace. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you have questions about your salvation, please remain seated. We're not trying to restrict you or keep you from something. We want you not, as we said in the catechism today, to drink judgment on yourself for taking lightly the sacrifice of Jesus. But, but most importantly, we want you to know we are praying for you. We want you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And if you have questions, if you're interested in talking about that, come see Gabriel, come see myself, and we would love to have that conversation with you. For the rest of you, uh, go ahead and come and receive the elements, and we'll take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take of the cup together. Now, give thanks to the Lord for his revelation to you. Father, thank you so much for showing us who you are. And God, when you showed who you were, you showed us in great mercy and kindness that the Bible says draws us to repentance. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy that has been extended to us every moment of our waking, every every moment of our sleeping, every moment of our existence. God, you have shown mercy to us. You showed mercy to us when you chose us before the foundation of the of the world. God, you showed mercy to us in sending Jesus. You showed mercy to us in your effectual call that caused us to believe, Lord. And we so we thank you for this. Pray that you would continue to sanctify us and make us pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to read this benediction over you. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.